With Halloween just around the corner, my family has plenty of tricks and treats planned. But thanks to Pampers, one thing I have never been afraid of is a leaky diaper. Fear no leaks with new and improved Pampers Swaddlers, now featuring a blowout barrier at the back waist that helps prevent up to 100% of leaks, even blowouts. We've always looked forward to getting the girls dressed up for Halloween when they were babies. And with Pampers, we knew that in addition to being absolutely adorable in their costumes, they would be dry, clean, and comfortable. With Swaddlers, you can rest assured that you have superior leak protection while keeping baby skin healthy. Pampers Breathe Free Liner wicks away wetness, allowing baby skin to breathe, while the lockaway channels help keep baby skin dry and healthy. Pampers Swaddlers are dermatologists approved by the Skin Health Alliance, hypoallergenic, and free of parabens and latex. Pamper Swaddlers are available in sizes newborn to size 8 and now feature designs with the newest animal characters, Shiloh the Elephant and Freddy the Duck. For trusted protection, trust Pampers, the number one pediatrician-recommended brand. Download the Pampers Club app today and earn Pampers cash. Redeem your Pampers cash for exclusive Pampers coupon savings and rewards. A little update on our March 27th live recording of Latina to Latina. You did it. You sold out our early bird tickets. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. There is still time to grab your regular tickets while they last. Again, the details. We are partnering with our friends at Poderistas to bring you a conversation with New York Times bestselling author Sochil Gonzalez. It is happening at the William Vale in Brooklyn on March 27th. You can find the link to purchase tickets on our Instagram page at Latina to Latina or online at Alicia Menendez XO. I cannot wait to see you. Hey, it's Alicia. Real quick. If you're listening to this episode on the day it launches, then tomorrow, Tuesday, November 6th, is Election Day. Election Day is, for me, the most exciting day of the year. And so this is just a friendly reminder, a nudge, if you will, that you matter, your vote matters. And I hope that tomorrow you'll exercise your right to vote. Hello there. Welcome back to Latina to Latina. On this podcast, I talk to Latinas on the rise. My guest today, Maria Cristina Gonzalez Noguera, known to her friends as Mac, has gone from being a beauty industry executive to working in the White House as Michelle Obama's communications director. And then back again. It's a unique career, one that leaves you asking, what will she do next? So let's ask her. Maria Cristina Gonzalez Noguera. How does that person become Mac? Because my best friend from college, Gigi, decided to call me Mac, I think at a bar in Boston. And she just said, Mac, eso suena cool. (laughs) It is cool. I like it. I embrace it. I also embrace, as I said, Cristinita. That's what my family calls me. But then there are also people call you MC. You have many aliases. I do. I do multiple personalities. So depending on what someone calls you. I know where in my life they've met me. So if they call you Maria Cristina. Maria Cristina is sort of the generic. So Maria Cristina can be from elementary school to now. If they call me Mac, you met me in college or through friends. MC is my professional name. So it means you met me in, you know, something professional. And how much of MC is someone not wanting to say Maria Cristina? MC is someone who got rolled over by the 
American establishment who didn't want to say Maria Cristina. And so over time, I have certainly come into my voice and said, I am not only Maria Cristina, I'm Maria Cristina González Noguera. <laughs> Mac, what did you think you were going to be when you grew up? A teacher. Why? Because I had a really good teacher in elementary school, and I wanted to be like her. And so for the longest time, I thought I wanted to be a teacher. And I think at some point in my life, I hope to be able to give some sort of course, maybe to just three students that will sign up, <laughs> but some sort of course. I, I enjoy the engagement, the group engagement, the sort of interaction and pushing back on theories and thoughts. So then how did it occur to you that maybe you would go into banking or finance? Well, banking or financing came out of my insistent desire to be like my maternal grandfather, who was a banker and a finance person. And he is probably one of the smartest people I've met in my life. And so I just thought, silly me, I could just be a banker and therefore be as smart as him. <laughs> and I think also some professional decisions come with context. And so right around the time I was finishing school, there was a big push for people to go into investment banking programs, the analyst program. I mean, this was circa 1997. It was largely a male-dominated field and so also just this energy to break through a field that was male dominated so that led me into banking but it was so not for you it was not my tribe not at all do you remember a moment where you realized ooh i've made a mistake here so i wasn't smart enough at 21 or 22 to think about it in terms of i made a mistake i definitely had you know as an analyst, you worked nonstop, and so I could be in the office running numbers at 2 in the morning and just think to myself, number one, I'm not sure I've built this model correctly. <laughs> I don't know that I'm doing this right. And then number two, why am I even here at this hour? I don't know that I am getting anything from this job. But I couldn't make the leap to then say it's a mistake. And so what happened for me, and, and in a way it's what has happened to me over and over, is the moment I make a decision about something, then I just move to execute. And so I knew I needed to leave banking. I ended up having a conversation with my managing director. It was actually my um, performance review, and he went on to offer me a third year as an analyst. And in the way you do it when you're young and have no filters, I said, no, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> and to this day, I will be eternally grateful that he was so wonderful about that moment. Then you do something that I think is hard to do, which is to move into another field, you often have to start a step back. So you go to D.C., you work at a public affairs firm, but in order to do that, you have to start I was the assistant the to two. There was a three-partner firm, and I was the assistant to two partners. But, I mean, I had only really had—I'd had jobs in college, but banking was my real first job, right? So when I moved to D.C., it was my second real job. And I think I just instinctively understood that I had to take a step back. And I, of course, didn't see it as a step back. I saw it as 
well, this is where I want to be. I want to be in D.C. I'd studied international relations at Tufts University. I've never wanted to be the front person. I've always wanted to be the trabatidores, the one in the background. And I knew I wanted to get to Washington, D.C., this opportunity in public affairs at Klopek, Leonard, Schechter, and Associates. I always give them credit because they really gave me a career. So I get there, and for me, it was, yes, I was an assistant, but I was learning the craft. And then, you know, to this day, I still see colleagues of mine from that firm, and we all laugh because I used to just make my way into meetings that I had no business being in, but I was the assistant to the partner, so I was in the meeting. <laughs> I mean, and it worked. And it worked. How did you make the jump from being an assistant to then being at the director level? Hard work. I was there for five years. I definitely paid my dues. I would get on any planes. I had to get on at any hour into any, you know, difficult location, whether it was Tbilisi, Georgia, several Central American countries that were in turmoil at the time. I think the sexiest place I went to was Brasilia. (laughs) Uh, You know, hard work, just sort of making myself available, never saying no to a project, everything from filing expense reports to actually drafting memos and helping to pull together pitches for clients. How did you know that you were supposed to be the guy behind the guy? Because you have it. I mean, if you wanted to be the principal, you could. You do. You're you're smart and but you're charming. We don't even ha- we don't even have to have that conversation because it's not about convincing. Right? I yeah. just it's not. I don't feel you're like, it. No, I know I am. <laughs> I just no, no, no. I just I don't feel it. Like you have to. I mean, you and I have been enough around the world of politics to know that there are individuals who are committed to running for office. And that commitment comes from a different place in their heart, in their souls. Some of it is genuine and great. Others we should all be cautious about. But I don't have that commitment. I'm not comfortable in that space. And the older I get, the more secure I am in saying that. And how did you end up at Estee Lauder? So here is where the role of mentors and sponsors and women helping women. One of my core mentors, a woman who was working at Estee Lauder at the time, and she decided that she was going to leave Estee Lauder for a different job. And she reached out to me, and we had dinner, and I went to dinner with a memo and a pitch for her to be my client for the new company that she was going to. And she laughed and she looked at me and she said, no, I need you to go and interview at Lauder because I think that you should succeed me at Lauder. And so she opened up the door for me. And so Lauder for me was a total fluke. I mean, at the time, and this would have been, I have to do my math, but this would have been 2004, I want to say, Going into the communications department at Estee Lauder, you either had to come from a beauty magazine, another beauty or fashion brand. You know, you sort of had to come from that world. I came from the gritty world of politics in Washington, D.C. and crisis communications. And in a way, I was lucky that that's what uh, Lauder was looking for. And I was also just 
to explain how important hard work is. I also put a lot of work into my interview, and I had done my research and knew that the industry was facing some challenges, and I sort of explained how I could help with those challenges, which was a skill set that did not live in the beauty magazines or in other brands. So you're you're in the beauty world, and then you get this opportunity that is just wild, which is to move to Washington, D.C. with your family and be the communications director for Michelle Obama. Wowza. Yeah. When I got the first call for the role, my son had just turned one. And (laughs) you know, as the mother of a 21-month-old, that months, you know, zero to 12, rock your world. And you just... You never think you're going to recover, let alone move to a different city for a job like that and pack your family, which is my husband, and also, to her enormous credit, my mother, who moved with us to Washington, D.C. And so out of hand, was there a part of you that was just like, thank you so much, but this is just too complicated? No. Because I think we all know that those opportunities are once-in-a-lifetime opportunities. And I believed and still believe, because I think that the Obamas are young and have a lot of runway ahead of them, I believed in President Obama's agenda, goals, vision for this country. And so the opportunity to be part of that was an absolute yes. But I didn't think I was going to get the job. Because? Yes, I had worked in politics, but it had been all presidential campaigns outside of the United States. I didn't work in the 08 campaign. I didn't work in the 12 campaign. And so I knew. And by the time, you know, this came up in my life, I had a career and I had not been part of that thread. And so I just went along for the ride thinking, well, at least I'm going to be able to get to the White House, to a different part than the tour. <laughs> did Michelle Obama interview you? or did She you... did. She did. Absolutely. The interview process, um, you know, the, as with any interview process, the first interview did not include her. The second one did. And that was a moment. And she asked some really tough questions. And so when I left the interview, I distinctly remember calling my husband and saying, This has been so much fun. It's just a bummer. I'm not going to get the job. (laughs) What's the biggest misconception about Michelle Obama? I think sometimes people see Michelle Obama, a stunning, elegant, articulate woman, and they think that she sort of came to it by chance, and she didn't. She came to it by hard work, dedication, focus, maturity, And I am just lucky that I had the opportunity to work for her and to learn from her. Take the job. You moved to D.C. You got your mom in tow. Did you two bond over the fact that you both had your moms with you helping you raise your children? I certainly spoke about it with her, more in terms of the shared values of families and of family members making sacrifices, for sure. Really, there wasn't a day where you're like, my mom is driving me bananas. <laughs> yes, there were definitely days where I'm sure I cannot remember specifically, right? But during those 
years in Washington, D.C., I truly had a lot of love and patience for my mom because she was doing my husband and I such a solid. That's not to say that now, later, (laughs) she doesn't drive (laughs) you bananas sometimes, but there's just that window, right, of that time in Washington where my mom could do no wrong because she literally uprooted her entire life and moved to the same building we were living in. She was on one floor. We were in a different floor. And she would come up every morning with a smile on her face, with a kiss and a hug, and, you know, no te preocupes, todo va a estar bien. I will take care of your son. She raised my son for the first three years, and my son is such a happy child. My son has incredible vocabulary. He just speaks, 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 because my mother would narrate her day to him during the day. Típica, you know, like Latin grandmother. Y ahora me estoy haciendo el café. Y ahora me estoy haciendo la sopa. Y ahora, nene, ¿qué tú haces? No hagas eso, Cayetano. So my son is a product of a loving, nurturing grandmother who did so much for our family and continues to do. Now I'm nervous that my child's going to have a New Jersey accent because the version of that in my house is like, Grandma's making coffee. <laughs> Grandma's going to go answer the tzua. Oh, who's at the tzua? Like, <laughs> No, my version is, Cayetano, do you want some coffee? <laughs> do you remember or did you have a worst... And I'm so sorry. I shouldn't say that. My mom's accent isn't quite that bad, but she has quite the accent. My my mother's accent is that bad. I want to be very clear. That was kindness (laughs) on my part. When my babies were going through their exploration stage, I had so much to worry about. Falling over, bumping heads. What did she just put in her mouth? The list was endless. But when they were in pamper swaddlers, I knew I never had to worry about a leaky diaper. Swaddlers are great for both baby and mommy. They keep your baby's skin healthy and dry with Pampers Breathe-Free Liner, which wicks away wetness, allowing your baby's skin to breathe. Swaddlers have always given me peace of mind knowing that diaper rash and leaky diapers were not in our future. There's also the blow-up barrier at the back waist to help prevent up to 100% of leaks, even blow-ups. Pampers Swaddlers are dermatologist approved by the Skin Health Alliance, hypoallergenic and free of parabens and latex. Your baby deserves that. And they're available in a wide range of sizes from newborn to size 8. And now feature designs with the newest animal characters, Shiloh the Elephant and Freddy the Duck. Having a diaper you can depend on is important. And it's why I have always loved Pampers, the number one pediatrician recommended brand. Download the Pampers Club app today to start earning rewards with every diapers and wipes purchase. Not to mention, get great parenting content with Pampers Club. Hi, Latina to Latina listeners. It's Brenda from Tamarindo Podcast. And if you love Latina to Latina, then we know that you're going to love Tamarindo Podcast. And if you're in the L.A. area and can't make it to the Latina to Latina live event, we'd like to invite you to our event on March 28th at 6.30 p.m. We're hosting Amigas Blossoming, a night of celebrating and cultivating blossoming friendships. This will be in Highland Park, and all the details to RSVP for free are at tamarindopodcast.com forward slash events. Hey, Red, what are you up to? Just making sure all the M&M's gifts are wrapped and the balls filled. Remember that one holiday party when we had no M&M's? Oh, boy, I still have nightmares. The cookies? Yeah, you used all the M&M's candies that were meant to decorate the party treats to decorate snowmen. You did it again, didn't you? 
<laughs> they do look cute, though. Bringing cheer. M&M's for all fun kind. What was the single most stressful moment for you at the White House? There were several. And I think more so self-imposed than anything else. This need to deliver at 150%, this overwhelming sense of responsibility to the First Lady, to the President, to our team, to just a, a movement, you know, a group of people that are and continue to be so committed to a vision for the country. There isn't just one moment. There were several. Uh, anytime we took trips abroad, you know, were moments of intensity, wanting to make sure that she was representing the country, that we as a staff were representing her. We took that very seriously. Because at that point, you're dealing not just with American press covering it, but you're dealing with international Correct. press. Correct. That's right. My husband, also an Obama person, when he knew that I was doing this podcast with you, he said, you know, you talk a lot, Alicia, about warmth and strength and how hard it is for women to have warmth and strength. He's like, Mac is really one of those people who has both. Go, Carlos. <laughs> Singing your praises. <laughs> is that learned? Is that something you've worked on? Or is this all just really natural for you? Do you even know you're doing it? You're certainly making me more conscious of it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think, so if we unpack that a bit, right, warmth and strength. I think warmth comes from being raised around love and support. And so my immediate family, my mother, my father, my stepmother, these are three adults who I have known all my life, and they provide each other warmth and strength. So I grew up in that environment. My extended family, my grandparents were very present in my upbringing and, and very loving. My cousins, I mean, the typical Latin family. And so I grew up in that environment, and I hope that it stuck with me and that I can sort of pay it forward. And I think the strength has been witnessing difficult decisions that my parents have had to make throughout their life and respecting their strength and taking some of it on for me. Do you have a theory of crisis communications? Like, if something goes wrong, what's the first thing you need to do? I don't know that it's a theory, but certainly a practice. I think perspective is always really important in a crisis, and it's really easy to lose perspective and to spiral and usually in a crisis setting, you have several people around the table and everyone thinks that they have that one solution to the problem. And so, you know, part of it is sort of letting that dynamic play out and then being the person that can sit back and absorb the dynamic and gain some perspective and try and thread together some version of what may really be going on in order to then drive towards action. So... I think perspective is important in a crisis. I think the other thing is always moving forward, right? It may not be ultimately the right direction, but you need to move forward. You can't stop and let something happen to you. You have to move forward and drive. 
it must be wild for you as someone who's been on the inside to sit back and watch what's happening now, well, especially from a comms perspective. What does what does your dinner table conversation look like with Carlo? <laughs> it, we don't have dinner conversation anymore because we have a 20-month-old who's like, mine, 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 spoon, spoon, spoon. So Fair. that is that's our conversation. And that could be very similar to what's happening at the White House right now. <laughs> I'll leave that one right there. (laughs) When your time is done at the White House, you pick back up and you go back to Estee Lauder. Was that a difficult or complicated decision or was that clear? That happened over time. I actually left the White House, took the summer off, and I put myself on a program, the three R's, remove, rest, reintegrate. I had to sort of have a plan. I'm impressed that the fear of becoming irrelevant didn't paralyze you? My life has been a constant transition. I moved when I was five years old from San Juan to New London, Connecticut. Then when I was 10, from New London, Connecticut, back to San Juan. Then when I was 13, from San Juan, back to Connecticut, but this time to Guilford, Connecticut. I was the only Puerto Rican in Guilford High School. (laughs) That was a trip. And then off to college, back to Puerto Rico, then D.C., then New York, then D.C. again, now New York. So at some point in life, you just sort of know that, again, you have to keep on moving forward and you transition. But I don't want to skirt your question. I didn't know that I was going back to Lauder. What I did know is I wanted to take the summer off and be with my son because I felt like there was two years that just kind of I wasn't as much a part of as I wanted to be. And so we spent two months living a block away from the beach and just having a great time. To this day, by far the best two months of my life, with the exception of, of course, my wedding day to my husband. Let's put that out there. (laughs) And then we moved back to New York, and I started to consult for the Puerto Rico debt restructuring, and that was super interesting, super fascinating. It brought me back to my investment banking days in a real way. It also forced me to understand or pay attention and learn what was really happening in Puerto Rico. Puerto Rico had filed for bankruptcy, what was driving the economic situation in Puerto Rico, what could make it worse. And working with the electric company, the person I was working closely with would always say, if a hurricane hits the island at a Category 4, the grid will go bust and there will be no mending this. And so to then have it happen with Hurricane Maria was super interesting. What do you think is the conversation we should be having about what's happening in Puerto Rico? The long-term plan to bring Puerto Rico back. I think there's this, you know, probably from a good place, this need to feel like What is the long-term plan for Puerto Rico to be economically viable and sustainable? And how can we get past the conversation of our political status? Because that's holding us back. Right. And there are those who would argue that one has to answer that question in order to answer the economic question. Do you have a public position on statehood? I don't have a public position because I haven't lived on the island in a long time. If I were to move back to the island, I would have a position. But I feel hypocritical having a position about the status of an island that I don't live in. I My position is, can we move past that for a second and come up with an economic model that works for Puerto Rico And that sets us on a long-term growth trajectory. Where do you at least begin in the rebuilding? 
three fronts. The first is you have to look at the political parties and weed some of it out and make sure that you have civil servants doing the good job of a civil servant. I think the second bucket is how do you bring back young, committed talent to Puerto Rico who are building enterprises that will be there for the long term? And then I think the third is part of a cultural renaissance. And that cultural renaissance is happening in Puerto Rico right now, but really rethinking our sense of identity. Who are we? You know, we have an American passport, but we're from Puerto Rico. And, you know, coming to some sort of understanding about our cultural identity. You can't give up Miss Universe. We won't give up Miss no. Universe. I won't there let it happen, There is a line Alicia. in the sand. You've hung out with too many Puerto Ricans. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I know. I know. I know there's some things that are sacred. I think we have more than Venezuela right now. <laughs> in your work, you have stayed on message this entire interview. Congratulations. You have proved your medal as a communications I, expert. I don't think I've had any message. I've just sort of let it be. And even that is on message, Mac. You can't help yourself. Do you even do you know that you're doing it? No. All right. Well, for those of us who do not have message discipline, how do you teach someone to stay on message? You beat it into them. (laughs) No. It has to come natural. That's the thing. You have seen people on TV who are suffering through an interview because it's this canned message. So I think one of the things that I like to do when I'm working with principals is making sure that in any sort of message training or media training, you got to make it work for them. If not, it fails. They forget it. They fub through it. They make fools of themselves and of you. Here's my final question for you. Your son is six. Cayetano Miguel. How do you raise a good man? That is a very good question. Strength and warmth. That's how you raise a good man. Am I a message again? Did I mess it up? <laughs> You've like wrapped it all up in a bow, so there will have to be no editing on the back end. <laughs> but strength and you said it, strength and warmth. There is unconditional love for my son. But there are certainly moments when, you know, there's a discipline moment of no, and you have to be strong as a mom because those puppy eyes get you every time. And so you have to be strong as a mom. There are moments where I have to run into the bathroom and just laugh so he doesn't hear me laughing. And I say, no, Cayetano. No puedes hacer You cannot do that. No puedes hacer it. We live in a bilingual house, so <laughs> strength is, and warmth. What is it he can't do? Oh, my God. He He's six. Wait two years is six. They're defiant. So he wants to do everything. He wants to have chocolate milk on my new rug in the living room. (laughs) He wants to stay up until 11 o'clock at night. He wants to, who knows? There's every every day there are five things that he wants to do because he wants to push buttons and see how far he can push that boundary. And we have to make sure that Evangelina and Cayetano get to know each other. Oh my goodness. (laughs) She is ready to boss him around. And and he's ready to say, okay, no problem. <laughs> Thank you for having me, Thank Alicia. Thank you. This was so fun. Hey, one of the best ways to support us, besides telling everyone you know about us, is by listening on the Radio Public app. When you listen there, we get paid. 
and the app's tip button lets you leave us a tip of any amount up to $100. Major shout out and thank you to the individuals who left us our first two tips. We promise to spend it wisely. Thanks for joining us today. Latina to Latina was originally co-created with Bustle. Now the podcast is executive produced by Juleka Lentigua Williams and me. Amita Ganatra was the sound designer on this episode. Email us at hola at latinatolatina.com. Send us ideas for guests or talk to us about what's on your mind right now. Remember to subscribe or follow us on Radio Public, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you're listening. And please leave a review. We love hearing from you. A little update on our March 27th live recording of Latina to Latina. You did it. You sold out our early bird tickets. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. There is still time to grab your regular tickets while they last. Again, the details. We are partnering with our friends at Poderistas to bring you a conversation with New York Times bestselling author Sochil Gonzalez. It is happening at the William Vale in Brooklyn on March 27th. You can find the link to purchase tickets on our Instagram page at Latina to Latina or online at Alicia Menendez XO. I cannot wait to see you.